You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Radiotherapy. I'm here this morning with Dr Sharma and Panel Beta. Good morning, both of you. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. I'm feeling a bit outnumbered by the non-psychiatrists in the room, but that's okay. I'll, I'll get We're taking it. over. <laughs> I feel like everyone has already taken over quite a long time ago. Um, the, the agenda this morning is um, several. I'll be talking about Johan Hari's thoughts about disconnectedness in modern society and other social causes of depression and anxiety. Uh, and Vion will weigh in on the big sugar controversy, which I was completely unaware of until you mentioned it. Yeah, it was a bit of a collision of the personal experience and things I read in the media. And obviously it's been going on for, for quite a while, but, you know, when there's this perfect storm that, that kind of occurs that, you know, it really got my attention. I had to look into it. Yeah, no, I'm very interested, actually, to learn a little bit more about that. So thank you. Um, and then, because we are without the very capable help of SK, who usually talks a little bit about movies and, and um, films and all things creative, I thought I might fill that gap by talking a little bit about uh, Frozen, which everyone knows about, and Inside Out, in the context of giving children a more mature understanding of their emotions and the part they play in our lives and relationships. So first up, we're going to have a bit of news. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. No pills gonna cure my ill. I got a bad case of loving you. First up, a bit of news, uh, both of which actually relate to the topic of mental health and mental illness and social determinants. Um, firstly, David Goodall left Australia with the support of Exit International this week. For everyone who doesn't know, David Goodall is a really prominent ecology researcher who has made the decision for euthanasia at the age of 104. Um, he reported uh, that after a fall at home, he felt that the restrictions placed on his freedoms meant his life is no longer worth living. Um, and to me, it sounded a little bit like reading between the lines in a couple of articles that I had access to online. He'd been advised to enter supported accommodation. Um, what had happened to him was he fell over at home, he couldn't get up, uh, he lay there for a couple of days without being found. Uh, and then when he did get taken to hospital, he says, they found one or two minor wounds and put patches on those. There was basically nothing wrong, but I was considered incapable of looking after myself. And it upset me greatly being constrained. We've talked on this program actually previously about the euthanasia legislation in Victoria. Um, and it's interesting that he felt the need to go all the way over to Switzerland to have that enacted. Yeah, and I imagine a lot of people feel like they need to go overseas to, to access these these things. But, uh, you know, the hope is that there's going to be more local, you know, options available. I mean, this is a pretty amazing case because uh, uh, Professor Harry, yeah, is, is led a pretty amazing life, mm. very fulfilling life. So this is not someone who you can kind of put down to, uh, to saying that... He's just had a terrible, bad experience that, you know, had had that been different somehow that maybe he would not have needed to resort to these options. He's, mm. he's given a pretty good account. Yeah, that's right. He's been really active as a researcher for decades and decades. He's got a family that by all accounts feel loved and 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 looked after by him and he's got um he's an author he's an actor he's a poet he's 104 104 <laughs> yeah. and i mean usually a lot of the euthanasia legislation is framed in victoria at least around the whole idea of um an illness that someone yeah. suffers from and actually that's that's the central issue he doesn't suffer from any illness aside from age and how do you guys process that because we do have a compare contrast there right we do have uh, a sense of what it might mean for somebody who's 
terminally ill um, and somebody who's, in this case, really, really old um, and has self-reflected and drawn his own conclusions. Is there a distinction to be made there when it comes to euthanasia laws? I don't know. Is is life a terminal illness? Well, nobody gets out alive. Mm. <laughs> but yeah, we, even in those cases that it's terminal illnesses, uh, one of the things we always try to fix through palliative care is the quality of the life they've kind of got left. And he's making a pretty persuasive case from everything I can say, see in terms of the quality of life and what he desires. And when that's so poor, uh, then we really have to take that into account. Are, I th- that's where the that's where the rub is, isn't it? Because mm. um, and you're going to be talking about sugar tax a bit later and personal agency. Yeah. So does the does the person get to decide what quality of life represents and should be? So when you start talking about depression or anxiety or stress or grief, even if somebody's in a in deep grief, is their quality of life is that argument a foundation for a decision like this one? Yeah, exactly. And I guess the thing that gets brought up all the time is, is that grief ha- taking away the person's objectivity. Yet, if you can't take away someone's grief, well, then that's the reality that they're subjected to. And that's kind of the whole point. That's what they're trying to address here. So Yeah, I suppose. And, and I suppose the idea of those experiences like grief is we hope that they're transient, or at least the, the intensity of them is transient. Um, but that's not necessarily true. I've met people who've been profoundly disabled by grief for a long time. Hmm. It's interesting. He has hit the headlines previously. He was um, notable two years ago when uh, Edith Cowan University over in WA tried to ask him to work from home and he pushed back very forcefully against that. I think he orchestrated a media campaign, which meant the university had to back down and they um, found him alternative offices which were closer to his home. But their concern was similar to the concerns expressed by the doctors in the hospital here, which was he's pretty frail and he's probably probably not in his own best interest to be, you know, um, taking public transport across Perth every day. Well, and then now he's got this final journey to Switzerland. Which, by the way, he's taking by himself. So... That's one thing that surprised me a little bit is that his family, I would have thought, would accompany him to Switzerland, but he was accompanied by the Exit International people. Yeah, I wonder if that's actually to avoid any legal issues in terms of who assisted him to go through those last stages. And I I dare say it's probably a bit of a last resort. Mm. Switzerland, do you guys know the names of other countries that where this is... uh Yes, yeah. Bel- Belgium. Belgium. Yep. Um, it's also in, uh, possible in the Netherlands and you can also, various different states in the US um, right. make it possible for people to choose euthanasia. But they all have different ideas about what constitutes uh, legal euthanasia. Mm. So sometimes it has to be um, prescribed and administered by um, a medical nursing professional. Sometimes it can't be. Um, but I think, uh, you know, there's, there's lots of arguments for and against and... Exit International's been around for a long time. I don't think that we've... Um yeah. One one kind of final question for me to a couple of medicos. Mm. Do you reckon it should be treated as a medical issue or a legal issue? Well, the problem with his medical issues is they're not going to get much better. He's very distressed by his failing eyesight and he's obviously pretty physically frail and becoming more so. And he's 104. I mean, I, I feel... Uh, I, mean, I, I think that he's making a bid for 
independence and decision making and autonomy and I think that that probably is what motivated him two years ago too he didn't want to be excluded from his professional career just because he was getting older and uh, and and so I think that's probably really yeah. so, really fair. Yeah, I actually agree. I, I think uh, it's the principles of autonomy that are overriding here. And I think sometimes in medicine we really try to reduce things down to a medical issue because it makes things a little bit clearer in terms of ill or not ill, treatment or not treatment. But what we're really trying to do is apply a bit of a core solution to a fine-grained problem and there is there are deeper principles attached to this so I, I think it's more of a, I guess a legal ethical thing more than a medical thing yeah. or maybe even just a societal thing linking forward to what I'm going to be talking about which is why does our society make us depressed and sick um, you know why don't we have a society which allows people like him to to feel as though they can continue to live in a supported manner and and maintain their autonomy even if they do get help with some sorts of physical care. Yeah. I, I, I think I've been progressively persuaded that it's a legal issue, not a health issue. I mean, if we've decided that suicide is not a crime anymore, thankfully, um, then um, why don't we have some kind of arbitration in, in, in a legal context where medical experts come in and talk about the case, the patient talks about the case, the family talks about the case, and a, and a judgment is made and whether this can be understood as suicide. And if it's understood as suicide, then it's not illegal. Mm. Oh, interesting twist. That's that done. Twist. There you go. Yeah, Sort it out. <laughs> 12 past 10. <laughs> um, I did have another bit of news I wanted to mention just very briefly before we move on, uh, but is also somewhat related. So um, also about how the way our society works that might be working to counteract happiness. There was um, a West Australian MP, his name is uh, Tim Hammond, resigned this week from the federal parliament because he wants to spend more time with his family. Now, that's often used as a euphemism for someone who's facing some kind of hideous <laughs> um, scandal that's about to break. But in his case, I think it's probably legitimate. He has actually got very young children, um, six, two, and in some reports, six months, and in some reports, seven months, but, you know, definitely very young kids. And he does live in West Australia, so he has to commute across to Canberra uh, on a regular basis, and I think it's probably just at a point where he can't cope with it. And the question that raises is, you know, how come we can't make important jobs like this uh, palatable for people who also have families. Like we're going to exclude a large chunk of the Australian population from these very important tasks, uh, of, you know, governing our legislation and moving us forward. If we can't be more family friendly, the, well, I mean, the, this is just so true. And even without uh, cases like the, that of this politician who has to travel interstate, even for, for for most of us who live locally and work locally, just the architecture of, of life in terms of commutes and hours and school times and like it's it would seem it's designed by a madman, but you know, that's the thing. It's not really designed. It's just developed in this really reactionary way. And that is not conducive to uh, to, to, to to kind of happiness and good health and sleep and exercise. And, uh, you know, you, if you get quite frustrated sometimes as a GP when you, you know you're supposed to say things like fit in, exercise and, and, and self-care, etc. But the other part of your brain goes, I know what it's like on the other end. Where do they do it? And this is just not the way we've built our societies. Mm. There's, a, there's a juicy um, tension, I think, in stories like this, um, or many juicy tensions in a story like this. One of them is um, in the context of democracy and the notion that our representatives should be just like us. And and it's the lived experience through policy making that um, establishes some kind of legitimacy um, that the policy makers can hold through the legislative process. So people like us in Parliament need to be family members, 
gays, straight, sexualities, religions, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the, the, the tension is then that in order to be somebody who can dedicate your mind and attention to policy making and the complexities of that, you almost can't be a family mm. person with all of these other identities that you're trying to juggle because there's so much competition for living your life um, that takes you away from that. And then so as citizenry, we've got to somehow reconcile what we expect of our representatives to be people like us, but also to be experts in policy making. Yeah, and and I mean, just taking it down to the very basic level of breastfeeding in Parliament. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't. I don't. I, I think women should be allowed to breastfeed in Parliament if that's what they want to do. But also, there shouldn't be so much pressure for them to be there for eighteen hours a day if they have a young baby. So it should be more flexibility, I think, in the way that people have to vote and and represent their population. I don't. I don't really think that it requires that kind of intense, um, you know, not, uh, days and nights spent in a in a chamber for them to really be able to do democracy effectively. Anyway, that's my belief. Now, I want to talk about a book called Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. So the author, Jonathan Hari, was out here recently for the Sydney Writers' Festival and talked with Philip Adams about his book. You can find the podcast online. I expected what he said to enrage me, but instead it was what Philip Adams said that made me cross. And then I kept reading about Johan Hari and I got much more cross. Um... <laughs> The book and several Guardian blogs have caused quite a storm. Uh, Philip Adams calls him a bomb tosser, actually, in the podcast, in his interview, for making these fairly polemical statements about the medical model of mental illness. And and I suppose that is what irritated me when I subsequently read little bits and pieces of the book online. I must confess, actually, I haven't read the entire book, and I should. Um, it, it's sort of... Uh, it's the classic New Yorker approach to journalism and, in fact, scientific inquiry, which I find really irritating, which is that uh, someone has an idea that there's an issue and then they go and talk to an expert that they find about the issue and on the, along the way they tell their own personal story interspersed with their understanding of the issue and then that allows them, I think, to get a very... Um, cherry-picked view of what, in fact, mm. is going on. So in the course of this exploration, if, if Johan Hari had called his book uh, My Experience of Depression and Why Antidepressants Aren't the Only Answer and Why Therapy Helps If You've Had Trauma in Your Childhood, I think that would have been completely reasonable. But he's made this much broader societal um, statement about what's wrong with society and, in fact, it is the bonds between us which have been broken in the modern world which are the problem. So... Um, that's a problem. Uh, I mean, the real story is always a little bit more complicated than you think. He has been embroiled in his own controversy about um, plagiarism in the past and altering people's Wikipedia pages to say mean things, which is a bit um, okay. unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, that takes away a little bit of credibility. Yeah, who are these probably... experts he found? <laughs> he found uh, various different people who, in fact, are you know have uh, made important contributions to the world of research. One of the... Uh, researchers that he talks about at some point in is a guy called Michael um, M Michael Mardo, I think I've written down his name somewhere here, Marmot, sorry and that's a very famous paper which was done in the UK, so he actually looked at the levels of stress anxiety and related mental health problems in British civil servants 
uh, I think probably the 1980s now. And whereas we would naturally presume that people with a more responsible job would be more stressed and have more related problems, in fact, it was the reverse, that the more junior civil servants were actually under quite a lot of chronic stress and experienced quite a lot of related anxiety concerns. And he thought that this related to their sense of powerlessness and lack of control over their life and, and their circumstance. And he says that is a major contributor, uh, particularly because he talks about the statistics about how much people enjoy their work uh, and, and how many people really don't enjoy their work. He calls it sleepworking, where there's a large majority of people who just go through the motions at work and mm. don't find it in any way enjoyable. And there's this tiny sliver of people who really love what they do. And then there's a you know, percentage of people who actively hate it. So he thinks that's a major contributor to the kind of um, epidemic of mental ill health that we've diagnosed as depression and anxiety in the mm -hmm. modern world. So that's that's one aspect of it. I think um, I think he starts off, uh, I think, in a very open way, talking about his own experience of depression and treatment. So initially he was first prescribed antidepressants at the age of 18 when he went to his local doctor and told him that he was very, very sad. And they helped for a period of time, but not for a terribly long time and I think that's probably he says quite a widespread experience and I think that's a, probably a reasonable thing to say yeah. um, and then he had progressively higher doses prescribed and he was on antidepressants for a period of nearly 15 years uh, and he decided perhaps that that wasn't really helping he kept on having breakthrough sadness he calls it uh, he's also had a long period of therapy and I think that's been important for him but in one of the moments in his book he also talks about going to speak to a prominent therapist who talks about how uh, childhood experiences of trauma and and, and all sorts of um, adverse experiences in development will predispose you to adult experience of depression and anxiety. And he sort of presents this as a as a um, uh, some kind of revelation when. <laughs> really, I would have thought it was kind of received wisdom for many decades that we think that there is a substantial contribution to adult onset depression and anxiety from developmental experiences. I think that's kind of pretty standard, I would have thought. Yeah, I would have thought so too. I mean, is it is it the fact that, is it a bit of a straw man fallacy where you, they find one kind of narrative being told in, in the mainstream media or perhaps, you know, even medically speaking, perhaps that some researchers and doctors believe and that's somehow construed to be the view of everyone and... Yes, and I think that's the problem that I have with this book. He talks about the medical model having um, to do with serotonin syndrome and all serotonin levels being a problem in depression and the idea that arises from that that people have broken brains and that that's the problem. Uh, and I don't really think that any psychiatrist I know would ever really approach the problem in that in that way. I don't... No. Well, I, I mean, even back in medical school, I think we were, we were taught quite well about there's this these kind of competing views, and not even views necessarily, but you can have people who have more of this kind of chemical almost issue dysfunction, but then there's this entire kind of social side to it as well. And you, you, part of your work is to really work out who's you know, what's contributing how much to which patients, and that's going to, to, to tailor who's going to respond better to medications, who's not, who needs societal support, who needs psychological support. So, I mean, it's, again, it really does feel like a bit of a straw man fallacy, really. I thought so. And, uh, you know, the biopsychosocial model is so ingrained now in teaching in medical schools that it's almost, um, it's sort of almost redundant because that's how we think. At least yeah. I, th I thought that that was the state of play. Um, but anyway, I think it's useful perhaps for there to be a different perspective, certainly for someone who's an, had an experience of mental illness and then, you know, does want to understand it more and wants to um, contribute to other people's better understanding of it because I suppose one of the core aspects of 
being depressed and anxious is you feel quite alone with your distress and your pain. And in this book, I think he is reaching out to other people who've had similar experiences and that's why he shares his story. We kind of just throw in, oh, there's so much going on there. It's fascinating from yeah. a from a political sociologist's point of view, right? Um, the, this is I, why I was interested to have you a, both talking about it because I think I do think, yeah, that's what he's saying, is that it's not just the serotonin. A, I think there's, um, you know, so let's starting with things that we assume that are pretty much unquestionable, you know, that somehow childhood experiences um, inform um, your maturing process in a literal and figurative sense and what you might end up experiencing as a um, youth and adult and so on and so forth. That doesn't seem like too debatable. But surely the way that things are dealt with and when he starts talking about um, the role of psychiatrists and the role of medicine, what, what the conversation now becomes is how we deal with the consequences of those causes. Mm. And so setting up that binary between causes and consequences I think is really useful. And I think when we start talking about dealing with it, dealing with the consequences, that's when it does become political, sociological, medical, legal, and and so on. Yeah, I think that's true because I think he has a point in that, particularly in the NHS, resources are very stretched. It is cheaper to prescribe an antidepressant than to send someone off for a course of individual therapy, which could take months and years before someone really experiences a profound and lasting benefit. But it is a profound and lasting benefit from therapy. Sure. It's just very expensive to do. Well, and, and therapy, if we talk about the most um, generic approach for most people's experience of therapy, it'll be something in the talking therapies such as CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy and so on. And CBT, for all its merits, nevertheless does reduce things to the individual. It's talking about your behaviours and your reflexivity and what you can control. Mm. So if your anxieties are sourced in the workplace, CBT talks you through how you can um, ruin it. So in other words, it's reducing everything to the individual. In other words, it's very neoliberal capitalist. Oh, that's so true. Oh, how interesting. No, that's really true. And yet we do know that, you know, rates of suicide, rates of self-harm, rates of all kinds of um, markers of distress like alcoholism uh, uh, rise and fall in societies according to very large, powerful influences which are external to the individual, you know, uh, financial crisis, um, uh, economic collapse or even, you know, a tsunami or something like the 9-11 attacks where a whole society feels embattled and distressed. Those things make more people harm themselves. Those mm. things make people mm. behave in ways which aren't necessarily under their control. And, and, and I agree that the whole idea of CBT has its, as its sort of informing prejudice, this idea that you are the agent yeah. uh, in control of your destiny. And, and I think that's worth questioning. Yes, I think Absolutely, so too. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think part of the catch is though, as in the medical establishment, you know, doctor, psychiatrists, et cetera, well, the only kind of tools, the tools that are easiest at our disposal are things like therapies and medications, etc. Whereas it, it, it is absolutely true that the broader aspects of dealing with depression and all those uh, other mental health issues, the societal side of things, it's not really something that you have a lot of control over in your 60 minutes appointment with, it, with a patient or a 15 minute appointment uh, with your patient. And uh, so there's grains of truth to what, to, to what are being said, I think. Mm. 
Mm, yeah, I, I, but I, yeah, so so I, I think that we're in a bind, aren't we? We're, we're faced with the individual in front of us and they are, as we are, subject to all of these much bigger stresses, you know, relating to their job and their home environment and, and, and their financial stress. I suppose the other thing that Johan Hari talks a little bit about is this idea of um, the lack of connections, particularly as you age, and I think that's possibly something um, that might have influenced uh, David Goodall's decision. Uh, he said... At one point he said, all my friends are dead, <laughs> uh, which is a terribly sad thing to say. Uh, and and I, I think that um, the, we are not, we are tribal social beings, basically. And our modern life encourages us to live more and more individual and individualistic lives. And that, I think that that's, there's a critical tension there between what makes us happy and what we're encouraged by society to aim for. Yeah. So I, I, I found that very interesting. And, I, and, and for that reason, I, I'm pleased that Johan Hari made me cross. Um, and, and, and yet, I still have other things to criticise him for. So he talks mm-hmm. a little bit about the determinants of depression as he sees them. One of them, he says they're nine, particularly he rails against, say, for example, the DSM, which is our okay. um, system for codifying mental health problems. And then he sets up his own nine criteria for depression or causes for depression, uh, two of which he feels are biological and, and the other seven of which he feels are sort of societal and environmental. And uh, I think that that's... I mean, it's a fairly dogmatic way, I think, of looking at depression, which is very multifactorial and and actually in in treatment, I think, is also highly multifactorial. And I want to bring in this idea of uh, social prescribing, which has been something which the UK has experimented with and GPs often do. I don't know if you've heard about that at Not all. Not phrased in that in that way, but go on, please. Okay, so it's it's about prescri- literally writing out a prescription for someone to go and join an art therapy class or to get involved in some sort of group activity, uh, trying to make sure that we prioritise social connections and um, and social supports in the same way that we would prioritise, say, taking a pill or taking any kind of treatment. I think it's an interesting approach mm. to, you know, that sort of problem. Funny, isn't it, when you mentioned the neoliberal capitalist model, because uh, my first instinct against that thing is I don't really know if we have the culture that's going to accept me as a doctor telling people what to do in, in those kind of domains of their life. Well, one of the, I mean, one of the reasons why I personally find um, it difficult to be in private practice is that people do come to psychiatrists with that... With that um, uh, request, you know, I, a lot of the time I see people with what I think is existential angst, right. and uh, they're on a search for meaning, and I don't have the answer to that because I'm not, I'm not a philosopher or a seer. I, I reckon that's that's a really crucial point. So this notion of the expert now, you know, are we like experts in our own lives and of our own lives? Mm. Um, and if we keep going with the idea of the workplace as one site of anxiety, stress, depression, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And think about all the different things that go on in workplaces that in different ways, perhaps without using these words, um, are dealing with it. So, you know, workplaces are from time to time having consultants come in and they'll do cross-cultural training or they'll do um, uh, conflict resolution or they'll do uh, career planning. Um, and it's all about sort of like making the workplace function um, it, you know, among human beings who are incredibly flawed, uh, who are incredibly um, complex. self-conscious, complex, yeah. and so on and so forth. Now, somebody who comes in and does cross-cultural training is not a psychologist or a psychiatrist and not prescribing anything, but the objective of being cross-culturally aware in a, in a workplace where you need that skill is to make sure that there's a cohesion and that people aren't put at risk 
of mm. marginalisation aren't put at risk of all those things that may be a cause of anxiety, stress, depression, etc. Yes, and and so I think I mean I I would. I, I, this is why I have these very specific roles in, in my work is because I don't think that I can be an expert on life or existence. I, I'm pretty good at um, ex- explaining to people the risks and benefits of very di- various different kinds of medication and I can treat delirium very effectively. <laughs> and, that's, and that's the kind of the circumscribed areas where I feel like I'm very much at home. But I would also mount a bit of a defence of psychiatry in the face of this attack by Johan Hari, just mm-hmm. to finish up, because I feel as though... Um, psychiatrists don't just think that medication is the answer. And as one um, piece of evidence for this, I would cite the Cunningham Dax art collection, which is now housed at Melbourne University. Cunningham Dax was a British psychiatrist who came out to Australia and worked here from the 1950s onwards and died a few years ago in 2008. He felt that art therapy in particular was a central aspect of recovery and was really important to provide that creative space for people who were experiencing all sorts of mental health problems and to help them learn tools to recover from it and regain a sense of agency and control, creativity and mastery. And so there's about 15,000 works of art now in the Cunningham Dax collection. It's a permanent exhibition and you can walk in and have a look anytime. Uh, It's actually housed on the ground floor of the the Brain Centre in um, Melbourne University, so the Kenneth Meyer Building. And they also have rotating exhibitions. So one I saw recently was of the uh, Black Saturday bushfires, um, people who had gone to art therapy in the wake of that experience. So I think I would say I don't... I mean, this is the whole idea that Freud promulgated amongst many other ideas, which, again, might be um, more or less accurate and applicable to our current society. But just the idea that people are whole people and they contain multiple... um, complex reasons why they might be distressed at any one point in their life or other and uh, we need to take all of that into account including their creativity and their need for social connection in order to help them regain their wellness that's what i would say in defense of my my profession (laughs) (laughs) so dr sharma tell me about sugar why is it such a bad thing i thought it was like you know air and water and why it's such a bad thing it's only a bad thing for the last week uh, yeah, <laughs> basically because it's now started to affect me, which is what this mm. is all about. Of course, um, always. Sure. Yeah, look, there, there was a bit of media attention this week. There was a Four Corners report, <coughs> articles in the conversation, AMA's, you know, been kind of tweeting about it too, about uh, the sh- sugar issue in terms of the health issues it can cause, but also the push for this sugar tax. But it became really relevant for me because I, for the first time about a week ago, realised exactly how hooked on sugar I really was. How did you find out? Well, so put it this way, uh, what should have been just a three-day binge over Easter has just continued in this pretty magnificent streak. <laughs> Easter's a long time ago now. Yeah, I know. And <laughs> it's you know what, it actually started off being quite funny because I was just eating, you know, chocolate. I mean this every single day. And it was still, you know, ha-ha because I wasn't really putting on too much weight, etc. still eating vegetables. About a month ago I got injured and I really started to, you know, cut down my exercise and saw how much it was starting to affect me. Uh, it's kind of stopping that funny when I realised <laughs> that I actually was trying to cut down and I couldn't. And the day I went, right, I'm going to stop, that 48 hours, my word, I really discovered what sugar cravings mean. Uh, I, I think I know what sugar cravings okay. mean. Well, this, is, so it's like, <laughs> this isn't like, you know, uh, getting out of bed to walk to to your fridge to, to get chocolate. I was getting out of bed to walk to IGA at 11.30 at night. <laughs> To, to get chocolate. And I wasn't happy about it. This wasn't... It was just... 
it was just horrifying. And uh, so, of course, you know, it was just good timing because, uh, as I said, there's been a few revelations about, you know, the big sugar lobbies in Australia and this big push that's occurring now for, for a sugar tax. And, uh, you know, in, in this uh, this week, uh, there are a lot of people are named and shaved, the beverage companies, the professional lobby groups, the government, the ministers and literates. And, um, and I, 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 a lot of it's been kind of the same old usual stuff. But there are a few points that I think are getting kind of commonly missed. And I've had a few patients actually come to me this week, ask me a few questions about these things that I had to kind of clarify. And uh, I think the one thing uh, that probably I think most people understand, but we need to kind of understand is that it's really all about added sugar. Um, that is to say that sugar that doesn't naturally exist as part of a food, but that we actually add into food or extract from foods, essentially like you know, in terms of oranges in the form of their juice, and that we then kind of drink. Uh, and that the idea being that in terms of this added sugar, there are certain levels that are definitely quite harmful for your health. But there's also levels that we think are pretty low risk and, and pretty safe. And the issue is we're having far more than we actually should be having. Hmm. So the, the issue is that we should be having roughly aiming for six teaspoons a day, uh, six for females, nine for males, three for kids. Oh, that seems unfair. You yeah, get nine. I know. It's it's good. All that privilege <laughs> tastes mighty sweet. No. Uh, I'm going to die. Yeah, sorry. You'll regret that on social media later. I, 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 or, no, believe me, I, I regret every time I've been looking at this little gut growing. Um, but the... Uh, the issue is so the three, six, and nine you know, uh, teaspoons is what we should be aiming for, but uh, the Australian Bureau of Statistics shows how much we're really having, and we're having about fourteen teaspoons a day, and that's not even the worst because it's uh, males in the age of fourteen to eighteen, kids still are having about eighteen teaspoons. Where does that all come from? A day. Well, so 80% of that comes from junk food and half of that 80% comes from SSBs, sugar-sweetened beverages. So this includes your cola soda drinks, your energy drinks, you know, your Vs and your Red Bulls, etc. and also, quote-unquote, sports drinks. Yeah, uh, but also well. water, it turns out. Like, things that are marketed as water sometimes have added all sorts of things, including oh, like sugar. flavouring things? Yeah. yeah. They can kind of... And there's a lot of these hidden sugars as well. It, it, we're in a lot of things where you wouldn't suspect you know, sugars to be. But those uh, little packaged yogurts that people buy on their commute oh, for things, they're just... Loaded criminal, but, but we've got a we've got a disposition of thinking yogurt for breakfast is a great way to go. I mean, there's so many years of programming that I think we're still yet to, to undo with these things. And uh, yeah, I think like uh, flavored yogurt, it's about like even the small tubs is about eight teaspoons, which is okay. You're pretty much already over what your recommended daily maximum is. Um, so it's 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 a huge issue in that. The, the, in terms of the effects it's got, it's having on us, um, in the 1970s, roughly in Australia, 10% of us were obese. Uh, now, 30% of us are obese, 30% are overweight, and in about seven years' time, we think about 80% of us are going to weigh more than we should. Do you think? Because, I, you know, I, I wonder about that. Isn't there sort of maybe a bit of a tipping point where maybe some changes to legislation and a bit of awareness of what causes obesity might just contribute to a, a falling rate of obesity in children? You know, increased exercise at school and that sort of thing. I mean, it can't just keep on going up forever, can it? Or can it? 
Yeah, I don't know. I've given up optimism on, uh, on food <laughs> policy a long time ago. Somewhere between you know, like fats being good and bad and the you know, food pyramids coming and disappearing, I've just, uh, yeah, well, I've, I think I've given that, up. That, that's the issue, isn't it? It's not that people are choosing to do things that are bad for them consciously for that purpose. It's that it's so hard to know these days what's actually good for you and, and because the advice keeps changing. Look, I, I my reaction to that line, so which is a common line, right? You know, it's so confusing. You wake up one morning and you're told this is good for you. You wake up another morning and you listen to the radio news and you're told mm. it's now bad for you. That's that's the strategy that the tobacco industry used to great advantage for a long, long time. They they knew that they were on a losing horse, but they wanted the race to keep going for as long as they could. And one of their strategies for keeping the race going was to keep people confused. Mm and give them just enough little sense of doubt that, oh, you know, um, well, I'm, I'm down to 10 a day, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm not finishing the packet each day and, and this kind of thing. Um, so while it's self-evident that we do get lots of, you know, they have whole supplements in weekend newspapers dedicated to health and lifestyle, so we get lots of information. But I think there's, there's some contention around whether it really is as confusing as that line would would have it. And you think that there might be some intentional muddying of the waters absolutely, by lobby yeah. groups? And yeah. And there, there, there absolutely has been. Um, and there's been a long history of this, you know, right from the 60s to even quite lately, uh, you know, Coca-Cola in America uh, funded this, uh, uh, these fairly biased research trying to shift the blame onto reduced levels of exercise, etc., which were, you know, kind of subsequently kind of, bu- they were kind of busted on. There's a lot of people who, you know, industry groups who will still cite research that's been, re- re- you know, retracted because it was just, you know, plain wrong. And of course, uh, one of the things that, uh, that occurred in Australia was, was Fiona Nash, the Assistant Health Minister. Uh, I mean, she was called out because her chief staffer was uh, was a shareholder in a lobby firm that represented junk food, and she she had she wanted the um, the health department to take down the food ratings website pretty much the day it kind of came out, and she was really called out on this. So these things are this happens, and the big tobacco kind of strategies are absolutely prevalent in in big sugar. Thing is, though, the big sugar they get really frustrated when you're trying to compare them to to, to tobacco because I think the, the issue, the point they're trying to make, is that well. Cigarettes are always bad. Even like a one cigarette a day is going to cause some harm. Whereas there is you know, a safe amount of sugar you can have. So it's a bit of a kind of false analogy to be drawing between the, the two. So, you know, it's not all sugar is bad, even though cigarettes you know, might kind of be bad. So we shouldn't be subjected to the same kind of regulations. That said, the tactics they use on defence, oh, my God. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a bit of a mirror image, really. So I'm, I'm pretty suspect about them. I'm going to let you keep talking, Vion, because it's obviously something that's gotten you really cross. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about the sponsorship of the Dietetics Association by food lobby groups. That's right. So um, one of the things that came out there in the media this week was that the Dietitians Association uh, get uh, some corporate sponsorship. And uh, on one hand, they say, well, this is actually a fairly small percentage of what we do, and this is just kind of the workplace we work in. Uh, you know, there's, uh, on one level, that's happening. But there's a lot of kind of non-cash ways that they're supported by industry as well, for you know, for example, some of their larger meetings, you know, Coca-Cola Amatil provides the venue for those meetings. Um, now, you know, in all fairness, I have to say that the, even the Dietitian Association they do support the sugar tax uh, because you know, which I probably should say a lot, really, um, uh, if even they're kind of coming out and saying that. Um, but there's 
it's so incredibly muddy. Uh, there are so many vested interests and donations being given to both parties and politicians who have to represent the people you know, whose communities are driven by the economy of sugar, who have a direct vested interest that's quite kind of understandable. And it becomes really difficult to sort out what's genuine and what might be biased and, and, and what's not. So yeah, it's a really complex issue. And what's um, what are we are we looking at a a sugar tax in Australia? So the model that's being presented is a 20% uh, price rise in for uh, sugar-sweetened beverages because, again, they're just such a huge com- contributor to sugar and the idea being that that will hopefully bring down consumption and then we're going to see health benefits from that. Now, proponents of this say that, yeah, it's great, it's, it's worked in a few countries in terms of lowering consumption. What we haven't seen yet are the health benefits. Now, on one hand, it's very early days, but, you know, people are probably crossing the things that we'd, we'd see some decrease in obesity, which we haven't seen yet. Yeah, I was just going to say uh, there's a there's a parallel objective with the tax. It's to reduce consumption or demand, um, but it's also to change the supply. So it's also to get um, uh, producers of soft drinks, yogurts, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, to come up with new products that are that are less um, uh, enabled by sugar. Yeah, that's right. It's a bit of a carrot and stick thing, mm. which is well, if you can find alternatives now, like great, you 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 can you're exempt from the from the tax. And also, there's there's something else too, which is that it's not all about kind of punishing people or trying to get them to reduce what they're doing. It's to pay for the true cost of of the sugar. Because if you buy a three dollar can of kind of soda drink, that pays for the the water, the sugar, the aluminium, you know, the Ferrari, the CEO, the advertising budget. What it doesn't <laughs> pay for is the the health impacts to, to the budget that kind of come as a result, the people who pay for that are you and me and Medicare and the government and everyone else. So we're not, it's not even about making this unfair kind of punitive measure to tax these things, but it's just a, a true reflection of what the cost of this product actually is. And this is where the, the political philosophy comes into it, isn't it? You know, so you've got the libertarian point of view that I can decide what I do with my own body. Yes. You know, you've got the social democrat saying, hang on, but if what you decide to do with your own body increases health costs for everybody, then there's that. Um, and, and then there's obviously some argy-bargy <laughs> to take place. Between those two opposing yeah. polar views. But, I mean, there's also a third consideration which is that we are so influenced by all sorts of kinds of advertising and the the sort of subtle influences that you were talking about lobby groups um before who do all sorts of behind the scenes kind of machinations um maybe it is better to bring it all out in the open have a flat tax and and then at least we'll be able to measure the before and the after so the the flat tax then introduces the idea that it becomes a regressive tax because if we understand that the major markets of this kind of food are lower income socioeconomic um, quarters of the um, of the population, then it, it's a regressive tax. So the poorest people are the ones who are paying disproportionately more for such a tax. That's exactly right. And that's really the way the tax actually has gone in, in Mexico. They've been the population who've been most affected, but hence also their consumption is the one that's fallen down the most. And some would say those are precisely the people who we should be protecting. Um, paternalism. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. There I am. I'm all for paternalism. <laughs> I think I, I'm... I, because uh, I think that's really true. These people are very disadvantaged. If we further disadvantage them by giving them obesity and diabetes, I think that's a terrible outcome. Mm. Don't you think? Maybe that's a point <laughs> to end on, possibly. <laughs> 
Do we have another <laughs> announcement or we've got no, to go? We're all, we're all done. Okay. Bye-bye, everybody. Have this has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.